Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more, more meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, welcome to episode 57. I'm Danielle Delamar. And to those of you who celebrate, happy Easter. I talked to my friend, Dr. Stacy Wheeland, for today's interview. And I actually have known Stacy for a very, very long time. We're talking like 20 years, or at least almost 20 years. Stacy and my spouse actually both study organizational communication and they've done research together. And we know her, we know her family. When we had learned that she had lost her tenured position to COVID, we were in shock. And, you know, I think about these things. I had posted on social media urging people to you know, turn into the reality that COVID is actually going to disrupt their careers, even if they have tenure. And like, I think about this stuff, I know it's going to happen, but there's something about it happening to a friend that just feels much heavier. I'm still sort of in disbelief that um, Stacey lost her, her tenured job. But let me tell you, Stacey is resilient. And you'll hear about her resilience as well as her research on resilience here in this episode. To those of you who are going through this, who are also going through the loss of tenure, I think you'll find this episode really healing. I think you'll find this episode honest and I think you'll feel seen And if you have friends who are going through this, I would definitely recommend this episode to them. So I'll go ahead and introduce to you Dr. Stacey Wheeland now. She is a former tenured professor, a Pure Haven consultant, and most recently the VP of Programming at the Colossium Forum. So grateful. Stacy, to you for being here to talk about this really, really, really tough thing. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really excited about this conversation, but also just really aware of the emotional taxation it will have on my body and mind and spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about my current state as not dwelling in the loss and grief day in, day out, moment to moment. But visiting there, that seems healthy to be able to visit, to feel the loss, to grieve the loss. Um, But it's not a place I can stay all the time. Last summer, Mm -hmm. I was in the anger and the loss and the grief and all of those negative emotions full time. And, you know, people ask me how I am and I think, yeah, I'm fine. But, you know, that fine has a huge asterisk behind mm-hmm. it, all things considered, or I'm remarkable mm. given what's happened. And, mm. you know, what I don't say to people, because I don't know that they can hold this alongside the loss and grief, but I'm having an, a, a, I'm having a remarkable year. 
Wow. I'm, my kids wow. are virtual schooling because of COVID. I'm their learning coach. I have the least stress that I've had in my adult life. Wow. My spouse is working from home, so we're all home, and there's such sweet things about it. I have my mm. kids are eight and ten, so they're really great years and great ages, and we're getting to know each other in deeper ways than we have been able to when we've all been um, on in different orbits, you know, with them in school and me working more than full time as a tenured professor and not just the time, but the headspace that that career required and the Mm -hmm. presence, even when I wasn't on campus or in my home office, but the, the headspace presence that I would give that, um, a -hmm. lot of the time was a huge sacrifice. And so, and yet it's increasingly clear that this is not job loss. This is career loss. I was tenured, you know, like this isn't supposed to happen. This isn't just a normal job loss in that way. But then beyond that, I've come to see that I've come to be able to name what I was feeling. I don't even think it's so much about the tenure as much as the current state of higher education. And the fact that me being um, the program was eliminated and therefore my tenured position was eliminated. It was at my alma mater. I returned six years ago because of a real sense of call to the mission of the institution. I gave up a tenure track position at a state institution to go to a private school. And I feel like the sacrifices of my career because higher ed's in such a state that I can't imagine, I don't think that I can return to it, Um, at least not immediately. And so I do suspect this is career loss. This is about pivot in my career story from a career, which was one of the few that was still pretty linear and, and permanent compared to what we see in terms of um, job models. You know, we know that we, we tell our students to expect multiple different careers, not just jobs, to expect a nonlinear career path. Although I don't think we do that as well as we should as mentors and, and institutions to set students up for that. But, um, you know, in, in higher ed, we assume it's linear if you stay on it, you know, if you get to tenure and we assume it's more or less permanent and it's clear that that's not my situation. So, yeah, I find, um, everything you said just so interesting because not only is it not linear, but the things that you would expect after being laid off, um, like um, the deep grief and anger that that you talked about experiencing were, have been punctuated by all of these amazing things, the freedom, like you said, that freedom freedom of time and headspace and, and relationship and and that closer relationship with your family. Um, And I found it really interesting that you said, this is the the least stress you've ever had in your adult life. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the one hand, we've got this really difficult loss. And on the other hand, these (laughs) incredible gifts. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I'm, I guess I'm just, I, I don't know. I, I, I want you to um, speak to the gifts, maybe. Are you happy this happened in some ways? I think I am. And, and yet I don't dare say that to anyone. Mm. Um, I, you know, the gifts, at least the short-term gifts, and I don't know what the long-term, if this is gift in the long-term, Danielle, I don't know. But in the immediate short term of this year, during COVID, while my kids are virtual school, virtually schooling, while my former colleagues all over the country are jumping through hoops for higher ed that are Hmm. a lot to ask, in some cases risking their own health and the health of their family members to Mm -hmm. be in the classroom. You know, I... I've dodged that, but this is not the end of cuts for higher ed. And then I think I am so lucky that I lost my job last year rather than put in the time through this year mm-hmm. and work so hard at a time when my kids, you know, are home and schooling and to just not be present for this year and the gift that it's been only if I would lose my job this coming summer. I mean, I'm so grateful Mm. to be in that Mm. round, not the next round, if there is one. Absolutely. So, you know, there's huge gifts, but I don't feel free to, I I hesitate to share about the gifts too much with people Mm -hmm. in my circles because I think we are so binary as a society and how we think about things. And I am not ready. I mean, I don't need pity, but I do want understanding. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that if I am too open about the the gifts that have resulted from this horrible, horrible loss, that I still feel like the gifts do not take away the grief and loss. They're not... Mm-hmm. They're mm. not on a continuum or they, they're not mutually exclusive. And I'm mm. not sure people know how or can hold both. Mm. Although I have to say, when I've trusted people to talk about both, they seem to be able to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so maybe I need to trust people more that they can hold that. But I don't want... I'm not ready you know, I don't know how the story ends. And so I'm not ready to declare premature victory either, just because this year has been a gift. Mm-hmm. My guess sure. is that this will impact my earnings, mm-hmm. will impact lots of things for the rest of my life. And I'm thinking about what you told me before we started the recording um, about having these two bracelets that you're wearing. Yeah. Um, will you talk about those bracelets really quick? Yeah. So for Christmas this year, I got two really sweet gifts. My husband gave me a silver bracelet that has engraved on it. I can do hard things and it's on the outside. So anyone can see it on my wrist. And then I, a dear friend, actually more of an acquaintance friend, but who knew my story gave me another bracelet. It's silver and on the inside where only I know it's there. It says, nevertheless, she persisted. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. 
I knew those needed to be part of my outfit today because I knew this mm-hmm. was going to be hard. Um, mm. And and they've I don't wear them both every day, but I usually wear one or the other. Um, and it's just been a source of like my own little secret of of strength, you know that. And it's a sign of the community behind me, the sweet people that my spouse and who's been so supportive and wonderful. He's been giving me space and time to grieve and to heal and not putting pressure on me to figure out what's next. Um, We've really worked it. So financially, I don't need to worry. And my plan has been not to really think about what's next until fall when the kids go back to school, but take this full year to heal and to grieve and to discern and to dabble and play with some other things, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, he's just been so supportive and, and, you know, allowed me to do what I need to do in this year. And I think part, you know, COVID is such a sad thing. And yet to lose my job in the midst of a global pandemic has softened the blow. Mm. I mean, there's so much loss for so many people in this year. And so my loss is part of that. You know, it's not, I just think about if this year had gone on like every other year with my kids in school and my spouse at work and everyone going on their merry little way. I mean, COVID helped us to rethink too and to, to problematize things we'd taken for granted and to reprioritize. So I'd already started some of that journey with COVID before losing my job. And so this has just been a magnification of that process. And so I think that doing it in that context has been gift. And then, like I, I started to say, if everything had gone on as normal and then I had just lost my job, like the pause that has been this year has actually given me that fallow time as Bridges talks about that transitional time in between to be and to feel and to grieve and to dream um, that I think I would have felt a lot more pressure to move forward quickly to Mm. answer questions for people and think about how many fewer people I see. So I'm not getting asked at church every Sunday or all the time, wherever I would be at the kid's school, I'm not getting asked like, how are you doing? Which is a great question and is well-meaning, but like not something I need to answer all the time. And what's next? Have you figured it out? You know, (laughs) like I'm not Mm -hmm. being bombarded Mm -hmm. with those questions, which have implicit messages of pressure to heal, to move on, to make everyone feel more comfortable, right? Like I haven't had that burden of trying to help other people feel better about this because I'm not running into people as much. (laughs) Which is awesome. And I would also, um, I guess, want to talk about and think about, because you've talked about a little bit about your inner strength. You've talked about, the strength that comes from community, but uh, there's a piece that I think we really need to bring up. And it's that you 
wrote, you did research and wrote an academic article about resilience during ongoing job insecurity. <laughs> yeah. And the irony. Tell us the story. Like how, when did you get the proofs? All of that. Yeah. So, okay. I went to Sweden in 2005, 2006 to do my dissertation research. And I spent a year doing an ethnography in a multinational research and development company there. My dissertation was about work-life balance and identity around work. And um, in 2010, I heard from participants from my previous study that they were shutting down the site, 1,100 people in this small town in Sweden. And so I went back that summer and I did a few weeks of interviews. And then I continued to interview people over years because they were, they announced the closure, but weren't actually closing the doors for 22 months. So participants were working, my friends, these are friends, right? They're research Mm -hmm. participants. They're my friends. They're working there day in and day out, knowing their job is coming to an end, but yet holding on because of severance and things that they would get if they stayed till the end or till their end date. And so I interviewed them at various points throughout the closure while they're working. And so It's about resilience, less about in terms of like unemployment, because they were still employed, but more in terms of job insecurity and the unfolding of the, you know, the changing social contract. They were very aware that this was now hitting them in Sweden, where they really thought they were insulated from it. And so I did interviews over time, over three and a half, four years, something like that. And then, you know, I switched jobs multiple times. Um, I was at, I've, I've been a professor, a tenure track or tenured professor at three different universities. And so every time you switch jobs, um, it slows you down in your work. And I also went to a, a teaching institution, a liberal arts institution, so I had less time for research. So for years, I've been working on this study. I was so sick of it, right? Um <laughs> I finally, you know, analyze the data, get it out. And why was this taking so long to get this in print? So last year, Mm. I finally got an acceptance from Management Communication Quarterly um, of this manuscript around resilience. And so the study looks at the ways that they supported each other, like the humane things they did together to honor each other's humanity in the midst of this inhumane situation. and the ways that they were able to navigate it um, with grace, you know, um, together. And so I got the page proofs in July. I I found out June 30, mid-June, I found out that the program I taught in was being considered for cut. Two weeks later, I found out on June 30 that the program was being cut and my tenured position with it. And then Mm. I think it must have been weeks later, I got the page proofs, maybe a month. It wasn't very long. I got the page proofs for this article coming out on resilience and job loss. So I'm reading the page (laughs) proofs and it's just such a weird moment. You know, we, we all have these moments where our research in our lives like coincide in interesting and provocative ways, but this was eerie, you know, here I am living Mm this. Mm -hmm. And so then I started to write about it. Um, I contacted the editor and said, Hey, would you like me to write about this? Would you like me to write first person? And so I wrote a piece for the newsletter for the journal about what I was learning. I mean, really my research participant friends 
have been my teachers, the things that they told me and taught me and all those conversations, hours upon hours, like six, 60 interviews of like 60 to 120 minutes each. So all these conversations I'd had strengthened me and helped me and put things in perspective. One of the things um, I learned from participants that helped them enact resilience was looking externally and not making it all about them. And I saw this in my own experience. I mean, you know, being in community and being together, supporting each other through it. Those were things that helped. I also realized how much, though, that that framing of this as in a context of enrollment pressures in and especially liberal arts institutions and economic pressures and institutional pressures, you know, looking outward and COVID, like all these contexts that helped me look outward beyond myself were helpful, but more helpful for me to say, yeah, you know, this is a part of a bigger hardship. When other people said to me, oh yeah, there's so much loss with COVID. That didn't necessarily make me feel felt, you know, that didn't make me. So it's different for me to come to it than for to other people to say that. So that was something I could see that they didn't tell me, but that I could see as I applied what they had been teaching me. So, but the main thing of my article, the main contribution is the, the necessity of embracing dialectic and the tension between opposites as both relevant <laughs> And right, like that's what we're talking about, that both and of the grief and loss and then the gift. And that's the Mm -hmm. dialectic that both of those are very true. Um, Kate Bowler is a um, theologian. She has a she writes about hardship and Christian faith. And and she has a line that I just love. She says, life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. And that's it. You know, like this year is so beautiful. This year is so hard. Are there other things that your research has um, has taught you that have that has helped you to cope through this difficult time? Well, carrying hope is so important. And um, for many of my research participants, this was talking about staying positive. And I don't really like that positive thinking kind of framing. It seems cheap. And it seems, Mm. um, and I don't actually think they meant it at all cheaply. Like when I would dig, they they would have a really rich, deep, nuanced understanding of positivity. But the pandemic in the spring was really, I don't know. I remember a lot of people talking on social media and such about, coping by paying attention to what you can control and what you can't leaving like what you can't control, trying to hold loosely or let go of it. And so I feel like the pandemic was helpful in the spring teaching me that. And then when I lost my job, it went to a whole new level of like trying to hold loosely to the future, not just like Mm. what's in my immediate, what I can and cannot control, but like, thinking about the future as what I can't like holding loosely to the questions. I don't yet. I can't get stomach answering. Mm. So one of those questions was like, is this the end of my career? And in higher ed. And I think now I'm at the point where I can say it might likely be. And that's, 
might be okay. That's okay. I mean, if that's what it is, it will be okay. This summer, I couldn't say that that was likely. So this summer, a couple things happened. Um, Shortly after losing my job, I noticed that our sister institution had a position open, a tenure track position, a half an hour from my home. And so I applied and I knew it wasn't, the job description was not written for me. It was written for someone else, but I could do everything in the job description if given the chance. And so I had a lot of hope tied up in just the fact that there was a tenure track position that I could apply for and, and that could work with my family brought me so much hope and helped me get through the summer. Mm. And by the Mm. time in October, November, I got that form HR email saying, you know, your, your application is no longer under consideration. By the time that came, I could handle it because I, first of all, had figured that out because I hadn't been called. (laughs) And second of all, I had healed and come to a place where I could see that it was going to be okay, even if this wasn't the thing. But in July and August, it gave me something to do. I lined up my references. I got my transcripts. I dusted up off my CV. I wrote my letters, you know, all that stuff, which was good to have something to do and also just hope that there was a option, an option for me. So that okay. brought some hope. And then the other thing, like, so think speaking back to the point of like holding loosely to the future, I would say that like people would ask me questions and I'm like, you know, I can't ask I can't even handle asking that question yet. And you know what? Mm -hmm. I don't need to. I don't need to know whether I'm going to ever be a professor again, whether I'm ever going to be a teacher with advisees and with students that I'm mentoring again. I don't need to know yet. And I still don't need to know. Although I've come to a place where I can say, I don't just say like, I don't, I can't even ask the question. Now I'm like, I can glimpse the question and I know that if the answer is no, it's okay. And maybe it's even better. I don't know. There's life outside of higher ed and it's good. Mm. And there are other meaningful ways I can be a teacher and mentor. There are other meaningful ways I can use my expertise and experience and my gifts. They don't have to be used in that place. And, you know, as I talk to friends who are still in higher ed, that's shaped my thinking on this. I have one really dear friend who I called, I think the day I lost my job, you know, and she listened and we spoke and and maybe two months later, you know, she checked in with me every once in a while. And it was this fall. So it was probably three months later when she said to me, Stacy, I need to tell you my reaction the day that you called and told me your news. She said I had two equally strong reactions. The first was, of course, anger and sadness and so much loss on your behalf. Like just feeling that with you where you were. She said, but equally strong was this voice in my head that just kept saying, she got out. 
Mm. She got out. And that's been so life-giving to me for her to say that because it's helped me name the freedom I've felt this year. Freedom from some of the posturing of higher ed, you know, freedom from just some of this. I mean, I asked her what she meant by that. And she said, well, we've been socialized from a very young age in grad school or whatever, young stage in grad school to think about this as the only model or the best model of what we can do with our training. But it's Mm -hmm. not. I mean, it's a great model, but there are others too. So that's been really life-giving to me. And then um, also just talking with friends who are still in it about what this year has been like for them. And in some cases, you know, they're so kind. They say like, I feel bad even complaining to you, but, and I'm like, that's fine. Like, I have learned through this situation and through other situations, there are so many kinds of loss and so much grief in the world it hurt. And, you know, I can hold mine and you can hold yours and you can share with me about yours. That doesn't take away from mine and, and mine doesn't take away from yours. You know, the loss that my friends who are working so hard right now in higher ed to serve the students well, to serve their institutions well, they're sacrificing a lot. And I feel that. And I don't want them to feel like they can't share with me about that because they feel like, you know, at least they have a job. I appreciate Mm. the knowledge. Like, I do appreciate that they'll say, like, I I kind of feel bad even saying this to you. But that frees me to say, no, it's okay. You know, let's talk about it. So, Mm. and then also talking with people, even recently sharing with a few colleagues who I haven't been in regular touch with about my loss, who've said things like, well, higher ed is so toxic right now. Mm. And another who said, it's just increasingly unsustainable. And then another friend who said to me this fall, you know, you're getting out early. A lot of academics are going to be flooding the market. There's a lot of happening in higher ed and it's changing rapidly. And you're getting a chance to establish yourself and figure out your place before the market is flooded. Whoa. Wow. Whoa, you know, like, so just gifts of words of, uh, not words of empty encouragement, but words to help me have perspective and words that maybe could have been seen as trite, but I didn't experience the experience them that way at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I experienced them as like life-giving and freeing. I felt so much freedom. I mean, I feel freedom to be myself in a way that I haven't felt in higher ed. And I don't, I don't know if that's, I'm a strong extrovert. And I, I think I've always felt a mismatch in some ways in higher ed that, you know, I'm my desire for relationship has really an interaction has really been a gift in my teaching, in my relationships with students. I think that's part of the reason I have gravitated to a liberal arts teaching institution that that's where I felt called. But, you know, the academic work or the intellectual work in many ways grates against that gift that I have or that um, 
trait. I don't know what we want to call it, but so in some ways I felt like, a um, I've had to pass, you know, like, um, like I can't fully be myself. And I've all often wondered, could there be something more life giving for me? And now I get to try and figure it out, but I don't need to know yet. And one of the things I'm thinking about too, is that very relational way of being that, that need for community and your willingness to reach out and have dialogue. Like that's the stuff that's kept you afloat. Um, I know for me, I, I think my first reaction, at least old Danielle, her first reaction would have been to isolate. And I don't talk to anybody about anything. I just sort of cave into myself. And that's like the worst thing you can do. So it's interesting because it's sort of your strength and it's the thing that's helped you cope. And mm. now it's the thing that's helped you to see um, that maybe there is other there is other work out there that could be more aligned to who you really are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have anything to say to that? I don't know. I think <laughs> it's the only way I know to be. But I think mm-hmm. that in higher ed, I often had to stifle that way of being because there wasn't time for it or it wasn't valued. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I've also been freed from like, I just, as I think about future work, I think about, wanting to guard my time for things outside of my paid work. And I, I think about my family and having 10 more years with my kids in the house. And, you know, I said to one friend, um, you know, I've sacrificed so much for this career that I, you know, in part because I thought there was uh, security in it and now it's gone. Poof. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't get back my kids first eight and 10 years of life. When there was no part-time option, there was only, you know, more than full-time tenure track, you know, the pressures we felt. And I've been thinking about academic work and it's this never enough, this idea that there's always more that you could do and should do. And just the anxiety that that provoked for me, that never enough and that guilt when I wasn't working. And yet, I don't think that always working was good for my intellectual life. I don't think it was good for that work. It wasn't Mm. generative, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. But yet, Mm -hmm. you know, being socialized that, heaven forbid you say you had a really lovely, relaxing weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to posture and mention what you did for your work, not (laughs) the time you took off. So... Some of that toxic stuff. And then just thinking about how higher ed has shifted and the pressures on faculty and the, and the time and space that we, that I think f- faculty have historically had, which drew many of us to this work and felt like a luxury, has been crowded out. Yeah. And this, the thing I'm thinking about is, um, the reason the, the name of the podcast self-compassionate professor um taking that path that feels more self-compassionate to you mm-hmm. um and and i know you didn't necessarily choose it um no. but it's funny because you really are walking a, a more self-compassionate path at least from what i can see you know based on everything you just said in terms of you know 
I have more freedom to be me. I have more time with my family. Um, and, and some other stuff you said, but I'm also thinking about the thing I wanted to weave into this, which is you said you've spent some time with um, sort of discerning what you want and what you don't want. And one of the things you said to me um, before the recording was, you know, part-time work really is something I'm more after now than mm-hmm. full-time work. Um, and so would you mind talking a little bit more about that as you, again, walk that more self-compassionate path? Yeah. Well, I mean, I look at the time I have left with my kids in the house, but it's not just about being a parent. It's about being a human and trying to live a full life. My research participants and friends in Sweden would always say like, you have to have interests outside of your work or you're just boring. Like it's such, Mm. it's not good to be monolithic in your focus. Oh, we don't believe that in the U.S. though. No, I mean, that's what my dissertation and my early research was about was the Swedish value of moderation and of multiplicity that was so evident to me there and helped them keep work in check from colonizing other parts of life. And then the excess, the discourse of excess here in the U.S. and how much that permeates our identities and our practices around work. And so... Um, so, you know, I think parenting is the easy one for me to point to and, and gives me like a really, um, socially acceptable justification to say like, I, well, maybe not in academic circles, but like in life, I, (laughs) I don't want to miss out on this time with my kids. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't want meaningful work or a career. No, but there's gotta be a way that I can pursue, use my gifts and expertise and experience and pursue meaningful work without signing over my life to it. Oh my and, God, and there's for that me, both and again. What? I said, there's that both and again. You mean you Yeah. Oh yeah, it is right. The dialectic. And so that's my priority now is to find meaningful work, but that doesn't take over all my time. And I do, as I think about that, I think about really having to use time as a boundary because part of it is not wanting my headspace to be taken up with work, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm not mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. So, and that's mm-hmm. talked to me in a year. I don't know if I'll figure that out or 10 years, but so I'm looking for, you know, that's my goal is to try and figure out something. And my initial thought was that I would build a consulting firm that I, you know, I, I, my PhD is organizational communication. So there's so many different areas I could do consulting in. I think the hard part would be discerning what, and that appealed to me as something that would give me some freedom and flexibility to build it as small or as big as I want to. But it also feels like a pressure filled move, you know, like a lot more pressure on myself. So I don't know. Um, I have been doing my last research project, my latest research project, is looking at the work of a Christian nonprofit in my town or in my city, tries to help Mm. Christian communities, congregations figure out how to be more Christian, loving, truth-telling, patient, forbearing in the midst of divisive issues. So let's, you know, if we're going to be the church and if we're going to stand for something, we need to figure out how to look like Christ in the, in the most dicey situations. 
And that again is about love and uh, truth and love held together, right? So it's that dialectic too. And so I've been studying their work. They have a curriculum that they, it's called the Colossian Forum. They have a curriculum that is a 10 week small group curriculum for churches. It's really great. Helps congregations bring together people with differing views on tough theological issues and social issues to figure out how to listen and to learn together and to talk together to like surface the conflicts rather than just bury them and to try and practice enacting Christian virtue in those contexts. So I spent three years ago, two years ago, I don't know. Time is so fluid. I spent 10 weeks audio recording and observing attending a small group using this curriculum. And, and my research has focused on the moves they made that covered it up. Like how did they, even though they were there with the purpose of trying to uncover it, what were some of the ways communicatively that they continued to cover it up, up Mm. the conflict rather than lean into it. But anyway, so I know the work of this nonprofit really well through my research and I know the people we've worked together. They've seen me at work and We've been talking this year. I've done did a little consulting for them in the fall. And uh, we've been talking about me coming on and doing some consulting this spring. And then uh, really recently heard from them saying, we uh, have an opening coming up and we think we'd like you. We, would, we, we think you'd be a really good fit. We've seen you at work. And uh, we know you know our work and we know you have, we want you because of your expertise in communication in dialogue and interpersonal and organizational, all the things together, like all these different facets that I've been able to teach at a small school. And uh, would you consider coming on in-house? I know we've talked about consulting, but we'd really like you to be in-house. So for a year at least. So um, I said to them, well, um, I will think about that and pray about that. And it sounds really intriguing. I said, but you know, my priorities are shifting and my kids are home virtually schooling and I, I do, I'm look, I don't want to be full time at this point. Are you open to that? And they said, well, yeah, we'll talk about it. I think it's worth a conversation. So I took a weekend and thought about it and got back to them and said, yeah, I'd be interested. But at this point with my kids home this year, I'm not able to do more than half time. I'm not interested in doing more than half time. And we can reassess when my kids go back to school, but even then I, I'm not interested in full-time. So are you willing to work with me? And they said, yeah, let's keep talking. So, so I've just started with them and signing a uh, new program, a follow-up to the small group curriculum where their model is really awesome. It's about um, training and developing lay leaders in churches, members who have gifts and interests in conflict communication to be, um, leaders in that, in their congregations to help coach people, to um, be sounding boards for people, to have a process for bringing about culture change in church organizations to handle conflict better. And so it brings together my knowledge and passion for orgcom, for interpersonal communication, for dialogue, for conflict communication. I've been teaching dialogue and listening and interpersonal, all those courses for group communication. So it it brings together those things. And, um, it also allows me to keep developing knowledge of things that if I decide to do consulting would be really helpful, like more about coaching and training and development and consulting. So I, um, have been talking with different, a handful of friends 
about the position and each one of them says, uh, it sounds like this was made for you. And it does. Wow. It feels like it, it. does. And to it also too. feels really good and, and- because they're not coming to me in spite of my expertise and my degrees. They're coming to me because they want that degree. The, you know, they want my, my background and my expertise. They want my training. I kind of, I, I think I assume that if I took an in-house job, it would be like, well, you have this PhD in org, organizational communication and it's not really what we need or desire, but I think you'll do, you know, I think mm-hmm, it'll work. Mm-hmm. And this feels good because they want what I bring to the table. Um, they want to be doing grounded work grounded in, in research. That is so cool. And you know what is striking me about it? Like it's so perfect for you in so in every way that we can that at least that we can identify at the moment, and um, I'm struck by what you've said previously, which is I'm holding loosely to the future. Um, and so, like I think a lot of us, when in desperate mode, mm-hmm. we would just kind of grasp and like, yes, I'll take it full time, everything. Yes, it's perfect, and then we would just obsess how perfect it was. Um, and because you've had this time yeah. and space to discern, you're like, you know, let's do half time and maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. Like you're very sort of open to many possibilities. And uh-huh. I feel that to be so, so healthy. Um, that is such a learning having- growing edge yeah. for me. I mean, if you talk to my roommates from grad school, they would say, wow, she's really come home. Uh, learning to hold loosely to the these future questions and to be able to dwell in possibility. So one of the things that I um I think I started to try to get to but didn't this summer it was really helpful for me to frame it as like this is all part of a larger story and I don't know what the next chapter is. Like mm. I don't know the next chapter. But I have confidence it's going to be a good chapter. It's mm. going to be a different chapter, but it's going to be good. Um, but I don't know what it is yet. And so that kind of I don't, framing has been helpful for me um, to try and hold loosely. And I think with this position, I was okay with walking away. Because I really, when they came to me, I was like, wow, this is perfect. I really wish it didn't start till September. Because I'm just having such an awesome year with my kids and, you know, and, and just feeling I'm healing and I need space. Like I'm not ready to dive in. And then, oh, the other thing we have not talked about, but I think we should. Um, one thing that's really been a gift of grace is that I've been building a small business through a network marketing company. And yeah, you know, if you, and I know if you had told me, I kind of joke and and it's not really a serious question, but like, if you had told me that I was going to lose my tenured position and I was going to be working in network marketing, doing sales, I don't know which <laughs> one of, would have surprised me more. Now, it totally is the tenured position. I mean, it's not a genuine question because the tenured position was unthinkable. Um, the network marketing would also be kind of unthinkable, but you know, whatever. So in May, I've been using these products. Uh, that I just love. They're non-toxic personal care and, and household products. So a lot of our products that we use every day have 
hazardous chemicals in them. Chemicals that some that we know are very problematic and yet are still legal in our country to be used in products. And some that we have suspicions or the research is not particularly clear, but our model is, you know, that innocent until proven guilty, until there's so many adverse conditions or incidents that we can then outlaw something. And, And that means that we have 11 toxins that are regulated in the U.S. versus 1,300 some in Europe. So it's something I've cared about. And for four years, I've been using this um, brand of products that I love called Pure Haven. And they're really great non-toxic products. And so actually in May, before I lost my job, I hosted a party for some friends on Zoom and just introduced them to these products. Because when you have a product you love, you want to share it with your friends and family. And so I did that. And so my friend who was the consultant said, you should just sign up. You'd get wholesale pricing. And why not? You know, you can you can have these friends from your party can be your first customers and just who knows what it will be. And I thought, well, maybe I'd have a little time. This sounds kind of fun and different. Maybe I could do a little with it in the summer. I don't know. But I felt kind of embarrassed about it, too, because I was an academic, like a professional. And here I'm doing this thing that didn't feel on script or in identity, you know. So I didn't mm-hmm. really plan to tell anyone, but I signed up mostly for the discount. And then in June, I lost my job and I had a lot of time on my hands and I started hosting distanced backyard parties, do teaching, you know, teaching people. It's about education, educating people about reading labels and pay why they should pay attention and uh, selling these products. But really for me, it's a broader mission of like, pay attention and find products that are better for the environment and your bodies. And let's, you know bring about change. If, if we're not going to have change at a regulation level, let's advocate and direct our dollars in ways that protect ourselves and hopefully bring about change for society. So anyway, I've been building this small business. I earned a trip to Jamaica um, with my sales last summer, which we didn't go because of COVID, but now I get to take my family on a trip wherever I want to in, in 2021. And uh, I've been building this small business. I've been promoted up the ranks. And it's just so funny. It's a different world and it's different work. Um, But my family has always told me, my uncle, my dear Uncle John, who just passed away about six weeks ago, always said, Stacey, you need to be in sales. You, you know, you have gifts in sales. And I always resisted that. And, you know, but I've just, it, it plays to my strengths And my gifts, it's so relational. It's so fun. And I know network marketing can be, have such a bad reputation and for some really good reasons. But for me, it's just um, connected me with people and, and reconnected with me with some old friends. And it's just been really fun, pure fun. I'm just enjoying it so much. Go ahead and tell people like where they can reach you and all of that. Yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about why you should pay attention to what's in your products, I'd be happy to chat with you about that. So you can um, find me. I'm Pure Haven Maven on Facebook, and purehavenmaven.com is my website where you can check out Pure Haven products. Um, and if you're already into clean products, I would just say that Pure Haven's products are awesome. They don't compromise on the ingredients, but they also don't compromise on quality. So it really makes me frustrated when people buy a product at the store that either pretends to be cleaner than it is because a lot of products greenwash. So if you um, are using clean products or 
products you think are clean, I would encourage you to read the labels and check it out to see what they're really using. And if they're not being transparent about what's in the products, that is cause for concern and for trying to find out more. Um, but it also makes me really frustrated when companies um, sell a natural product that is cleaner and people pay more money for it. It doesn't work. So what I love about Pure Haven's products is they work really well. Um, we've got a great skincare line that I love. Um, that's what made me fall in love with the products. But um, great things. So check it out. I'd love to interact with people. And you can find me on Facebook or um, at purehavenmaven.com. Yay. Okay. Awesome. And so. <laughs> How funny. <laughs> no, I, I mean, isn't that so important though? Like, like this is the stuff that I'm coaching around all the time. Like, yeah. Be open to new experiences. And, and so I just, I don't know. I, I just want to be really clear that uh, even though we have all these reservations about um, doing certain things when they're sort of outside of the realm of tenured professor mm -hmm. and what that means, um, we really might be happier if we actually tried those things that we won't let ourselves ever do. Mm -hmm. So I would say just to listeners, if you are feeling a pull to go somewhere and you feel all these reservations and what are people going to think? And, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God do it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's been hard for you in a lot of ways, Stacey, like we've talked about this along the way, but you really are doing something you want to do for now. And it's just been open so life-giving after possibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I, the way I've thought about it is as such a gift of grace for me in this mm. year to have that thing to spend some time and energy on. And um, I think it's, I talk about trying not to dwell in the loss and grief, but visit it. And I think having something small to build and to have success with and to enjoy and to like come alive with in ways, parts of me have come alive through this Pure Haven business by building this as a Pure Haven consultant. Um, parts of me have come alive that I have not, that I've had to to minimize or not allow to come out or, or, or at least I felt that maybe that's not fair, but I've, I've minimized them in my work as an academic. And so it's been really life-giving. I think it saved me from dwelling in the loss more than is healthy. Uh, maybe it's an avoidance strategy. I don't know, but I don't feel like that. I, I think, I really feel like I have grieved this year, but I don't, feel like I've lived in grief, you know, like I'm not living there. And I think that seems healthy to me. I also, you know, had a counselor who I was already seeing and she's been a gift to, to be in conversation with throughout this year. Um, so. Okay. So I want to ask you just in the last, yeah. you know, minute or so, is there anything you need to say to make this conversation feel complete to you? Um, I think that we've been talking about just questions I'm not ready to ask. And I, I said that, you know, I'm not ready. I don't need to know yet if I'm leaving higher ed. And I, I guess I might want to explain that a little more. Like with COVID and the current state of higher ed, there have not been opportunities this year. And I think in some ways that's a gift because maybe I would have jumped at one, like that one that opened in my area that I didn't get an interview for and probably shouldn't have had an interview for. It wasn't the right job for me, but 
I think it would have been too hard to say no to that job. And I remember feeling a little bit of relief, like, okay, I didn't even get an interview. That's good. Because by the time, you know, that email came in October, November, I was kind of like, I think I would need to say no to this job. And I don't know that I would have been able to. Like, I don't know that I would have had the strength to do that. And so um, I think that, you know, in a few years, or I don't know how long when higher ed does recover, if I want to try and pursue it, I could maybe do that at that time. And maybe I can't. And that would be, I think that will be okay if that's the case. But I just, higher ed's in such arrears. So I'm going to give it some time to sort itself out and see if, if, I need to also give myself time to step away and see what I miss. Um, Mm. I miss my students, but I've been having delightful conversations. It must just be like March, the year after graduating as a senior in college that you want to talk to your academic advisor again. Because I've been (laughs) hearing in the last few weeks, I've had multiple conversations with different recent grads um, wanting to pick my brain about things. And it's been so awesome to feel, to step back into that role. But it makes me think that maybe coaching is something for me to explore. I mean, that plays at my love for mentoring and to be in relationship with people and asking good questions and helping them as they work things out, you know? Um, And then I think about this job I'm pursuing and there's teaching elements to it, but Danielle, there's no grading. Oh my God, sign us all up. Right. I hate grading. So I just want to end by saying like these really strong pieces of wisdom that have come out in this interview, holding loosely to the future, Mm. discernment, community and relationship and Mm -hmm. holding grief and gift together, the both Mm -hmm. and, both and meaningful work and a job that doesn't have to take over your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much. Thank oh, you. it's been fun. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well. Be well.